Welcome to the Uncomfortable Grace Podcast, a place where uncomfortable circumstances become the very conversations that could change your life. We all have some understanding of what it means to have grace for others, but how often do we demonstrate it toward ourselves? It is our hope that this podcast will teach you how to unpack the plot twists and to ask intentional questions that invite deep reflection when life seems chaotic. In the face of great resistance, we want to learn how to soften, surrender, and see where grace can take us because it is so much bigger than a Bible buzzword. Welcome to Uncomfortable Grace. Welcome back, everybody, to the Uncomfortable Grace podcast. Today, my guest is Rohati. How are you? I'm good. The sun is shining. Um, that's part of a song lyric that just flashed across my brain. I love Isn't it. it a pity? That Isn't the sun it a pity? Yeah. <laughs> you know what? I can see the uh, tension and the value in that statement. So I get it. Well, I'm really glad that you're here today. Before we go too far, why don't you take a moment and just tell our audience a little bit about who you are? Yeah, who I am often depends on who I'm around or who I'm speaking with. Um, I don't know if that's an asset <laughs> um, to wear so many different hats, but I, I do have many hats, um, yet no boxes to put my fancy hats. <laughs> um, uh, I guess for your listeners, uh, the hats that I would wear is I'm a sometimes pastor uh, I'm a writer. I have a couple of books out. Um, yeah, those are things that I do. Well, I was going to say for fun. The writing is. Do I do the pastoral stuff for fun? I don't know. <laughs> uh, those are vocational things. They don't really pay too much. So I do other work related things. <laughs> well, it's all work, paid work related things, that bankroll, uh, some of the passions. Um, yeah, that's kind of me in a nutshell. You sound a lot like me. I have my hands in about 30 different things that are all passion yeah. projects, but pay very little. <laughs> so you need 32 of them to keep up with your monthly. Yeah, I haven't done. Yeah, I'm kind of like that too. But I I do have like my main job. Well, main, main jobs. <laughs> Not rather than 32, it's more like 15. So, yeah, but I get it. I hear mm. you. It's hard when you are someone who has like a lot of creativity, a lot of interests, a lot of energy to not give and pour yourself into those things. So I think what I, I love about people who have that level of energy is you go into spaces and you tend to see things in my experience that are not quite as they could be. And that, mm. that, that is certainly one of the things that drives me toward conversations like this, whether it's podcasting or writing or community gatherings that mm. I see something that is a little bit off base and I'm drawn to it. And this is one thing that drew me to you, the book you have coming out soon. And we'll talk about it a little bit. Um, one of the quotes on it, at least on the back cover says it's required reading for justice minded churchgoers. And it struck me because I think, and maybe you can 
give me a little clarity if I'm off base, but at least in my experience, I'm seeing such a beautiful shift of people going away from this kind of traditional, like easy path of approaching their faith and coming into this mindset of like, holy crap, this isn't working or something's broken. What's Mm -hmm. my role and what am I supposed to do in this? So how, how did you come about deciding to write your book in a way that it's now being called required reading? That was uh, a reviewer that uh, the publisher took and slapped it on the back of the book. Um, so I actually, I don't know if I would call the book a, for justice-minded churchgoers. Like they had to create something to think of who the primary audience would be. And I'm not writing to that audience. <laughs> and, but it's actually true that it, it would be uh, required reading for justice-minded. For a lot of churches contemporary churches justice winds up being i can't say for most but for a lot uh it's it's an outreach thing it's just this piece that goes on the outside of the building it's not this embodied ethic that takes over the very dna of a community i don't think we can get rid of or shy away from justice now, especially in traditions that have long done that, fundamentalism, evangelicalism. Um, When you are stuck in the laurels of privilege or past privilege for contemporary churches, you sort of insulate yourself from everything else that's going on in the world. This isn't all churches, but it's, it's quite a few. Yeah. In this past three years, <laughs> like what year is it? In these past two, three years, you can't ignore it anymore. Even though everything was already there, now you're having, let's say, those evangelicals are suddenly alert to anti-racism. They're suddenly alert to reconciliation. These things that, as a country, at least in Canada, I mean, up here, we've been talking about for a century. But you can't escape George Floyd, um, even though you should have figured it out, you know, long before. Right. You can't escape um, residential schools and the legacy of colonialism. Right. Now, as you find these bodies buried in the ground at old residential schools, right. you just you can't turn your eye from it anymore. And more and more people in society but in church luckily as well are demanding responses the only problem is with churches that have really no concept or clue of how to do justice beyond that outreach that i suggested mm-hmm. they don't know what to do and so it's easier to just do nothing and so they'll continue doing nothing COVID really helped all these churches which is a crass thing to say but COVID helped <laughs> because it uh, it deflected the attention of of this summer spring 2020, where this reverberating call for racialized justice started to echo through the world, especially in North America, but through the world. And then COVID just kind of made us forget about that. And we had more important things to worry about, uh, rather than looking at it as a holistic posture for community and for humanity to embody something better, a better way. Can't we do better for each other to see everyone thrive? rather than just this race to the bottom or the race to protect my corner of the sandbox. So 
I think that the approach in the book offers something that is different in many ways to even the most justice-oriented churches, because many churches, and this is this is not to say that there aren't churches leading in specific things. There are. We can't throw away everything. But uh, for for the justice pieces, like we, we have so many uh, different ways of looking at the world and we need new voices to lead the church and community, Christians, you know, whatever. We need different voices now at the helm to offer new imagination of what a better way could look like. You said so many beautiful things that I want to like rapid fire address and ask you to expand on. But um, (laughs) one of the things you said in there was we have something better to address. And you're absolutely right that all of the COVID protocols and shutdowns and deaths and arguments allowed kind of a glossing over of the other traumatic true events that were happening or that had been revealed and were becoming more just talked about in the mainstream. And one thing you may not know about me, I'm a grief coach. Like I work with grievers. Mm -hmm. And so whenever Mm -hmm. I hear someone talk about how, well, we have something more important or their loss is bigger than mine. So I'm okay. I can just move through it. I push back because I do think that every aspect of what our global culture has experienced in the last three years or longer is so traumatic and is every second of it is worth attention. But to your point, there are churches that need new leadership because we don't know how to address all the things and then still try to do what we've always done or still try to be who we think the church is supposed to be. And I think in that you're right. It, we minimize it down to an outreach or a weekend conference. And then we say, okay, checked the box. Yeah. We did the thing. And, or we brought in the speaker who's uh, maybe typically more marginalized or less, we brought in a minority speaker. And so now we've done the thing. Look at this black speaker, friend of so-and-so. Yes. We did it. We, yeah. Yeah. We made it (laughs) y'all. You know, it's interesting. I live in a really um, conservative area. It's actually more half and half, but it's become so vocal that you would think it's extremely conservative, but Mm. um we see so much of that and people keep thinking locally, at least in the last few years, well, that's not us. That's not happening here. And it, it's been so painful to point out, are you kidding? Not happening where, yes. That's a Canadian posture that racism is an American problem. Oh, like it's intentionally actually embedded in the narrative of this country. I mean, like look at America, all those problems they have not here. We don't have a race problem. And it's because we don't share a border with Mexico. So we don't have as many Latinx folks. We don't have many black folks, like honestly. Mm. So it's just sort of this whitewashed space, big space. And, and we pretend like it's good, even though culturally we're probably really, really similar to, to where you are with Southern Oregon. Is that it? Yeah, that's it. <laughs> The state that was originally intended to be a white space, basically. Yeah, yeah. We've got a a great great history around here. Anyway, um, one of the other things you said that I wanted to ask you more about is talking about an embodied response. What you said, justice needs to become an embodied ethic that takes over the DNA 
of a community and gives us a more holistic posture. Talk more about what that means. What does it look like for someone to say, let's pursue what an embodied posture towards justice or inclusion would look like? I mean, we can use springboard off of what you shared around grief. Mm -hmm. And like right now, when it comes to grief, this, the pandemic, excuse me, the pandemic coupled with everything else has revealed all the layers of grief and how poorly we are at handling it. Now we are resilient. We can, yet we lack tools often. Mm -hmm. And then you add the church to it. It's really rare, like really rare to find pastors who are good at handling grief. Um, which really in many respects would, would be, um, holding grief well in community, but also being able to say, I, I don't have the skills to help you either. Mm-hmm. And, and this pandemic has just showed how, what, what, the, the, what's missing. Mm-hmm. And we still struggle with holding all of this grief of a life that we've lost. And we are still losing. Just look at how the how churches, for the most part, I'm lumping churches together. But look how churches are just chasing a return to. And I know we're on podcast, so I'll use air quotes. A return to normal, right? Normal. Well, normal for who? Yep. Like a million people have died that we know of in America, right. and that doesn't even begin to count how many have been disabled. Yet the church clamors to return to normal because it can't hold its grief properly. So what does embodied anything look like? Embodied justice? How do you embody a posture to hold grief? It's the blood, sweat, and tears, the taste, the smell, the touch. It's what we can do that is deeper, not more necessarily, but deeper unto things that grant life. And that's probably a slow, unsexy, uh, boring pursuit of life. But in its boredom, it holds the space for the lingering tensions. And I don't really know how to navigate through grief, injustice, all of these big human things, how to do so well uh, if it's not slow and with a handful of people who yearn for deeper and better as well. So that's different than just thinking of, you know, holding ethics or holding ideas. You know, Jesus was a loving guy. We all know the golden rule, love thy neighbor. We all (laughs) like, we all know those things, but to embody them, to turn them real, to enflesh them, that takes and comes with a cost. And in our kind of consumer world, we're just running this race to get back to the normalcy that that we had prior, even though we actually need to sit and linger with how we've been 
radically and permanently altered. And if that doesn't demand or force us, like COVID has forced us to rethink what community, church, all that looks like. And the best we got is a return to normal. Like, get get out of here. I know. I, I know exactly what you're going to say, because I like to say that, too. <laughs> <sighs> yeah, you pretty much just summarized why I do grief work with churches. <laughs> yeah, grief work's so hot right now, you know? It's like, you don't want to be full of work, but get, we're human. And now we have these pandemics and all sorts of things. Like, man, I can't imagine your work and how much, you know, that takes a toll on your body as well. Yes. Well, and that's why I was so drawn to when you said embodiment of this ethic, because it's, it's the way to remind ourselves that we are whole beings, heart, mind, body, and spirit. Mm, And it's not a common understanding. It's not something we're comfortable with. And what I keep finding in mainline churches that anytime that even is suggested, there's so much pushback on, well, the body is sinful. The body is temporary. What's the point? Or the heart is deceitfully wicked. What's the point? Or the mind is wrought with sin thoughts and is dangerous. Mm. What's the point? Or your spirit is displeasing. So what's the, all of this, what's the point and dismissal. And, and it, it does create a loss of our humanity in the sense that we're not willing, that we're willing to sacrifice Mm only so far as we're still comfortable, only so far as we can still protect ourselves and keep our pride intact. But the second it costs us our pride, we have to push back because now we are getting out of the mainstream. Now we're getting off the path that we think is narrow and good and just when the reality is there's so much that has fallen to the side that is actually more of what Jesus calls us into. I don't think it's even biblical. I don't think you can dissociate those things. You can't compartmentalize body, heart, soul, even though we have. um, No, it's all part of a whole. Yeah. And in the West, we have done great harm, I think. And we produced theologies that have celebrated rugged individualism and and this notion that we've been dissociated somehow from body, soul, spirit, we've been dissociated, we've been extricated from uh, wholeness. We've in fact excarnated. So the opposite of incarnation is, is we have defleshed what Christianity is supposed to be about, turning it into this notion that we can escape this world for heaven in the clouds, which isn't biblical at all. It's not orthodox. Thank you. Like you escape into heaven is not Orthodox Christianity. It, orthodox Christianity is way wilder. Like, have you read Revelation? Oh, the, man. So wild scenes that a second resurrection happens. Jesus resurrected just to show what will happen next. And we all coming back. But this earth here sticks around yet in a renewed and restored shape and form. That's wild. Bananas. Yeah, we've disembodied it all. We've and one of the critical reasons why we have done that is is I think, and I speak about this so across two chapters in the book, is that it's a grasp at preserving power. Yeah. So if we think about 
how we might have to love our neighbor or how we might have to embody Christ and God, the Bible's teachings around justice of the least among us, of the margins. Man, that's going to make so many people mad to see who's at the table. Yeah. That we have to figure out ways imperfectly to center the marginalized. And that means a giving up of power. Mm-hmm. Uh, all these things are, are the biblical take on, of course, you always think when you say the Bible says or the biblical, that's always somebody's opinion. Yeah. But it's kind of nonstop in the manner that justice is spoken about throughout the Old and New Testament. And when we think about how you can ignore, how you can get away from, and you know this, get away from listening and appreciating your own body Mm. and let alone valuing the bodies of others Mm -hmm. winds up producing so much harm. Mm -hmm. And you look at the mess now the church has produced. I mean, power, power. It's it's, uh, it's sad. It's extremely corrupting. And I I look back at my own story to try and figure out like how we got here. And I realized at some point that verse, you know, love your neighbor as you love yourself. Most of us don't love ourselves. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Most of us detest something, whether it's our internal, external, the whole shebang. Mm. There's a narrative of hatred or condemnation that we can again, attribute back to the Bible. It's another good tweet. Yeah. <laughs> that it, it just leaves you completely comfortable despising other people because you've detached from yourself. You've recognized I am not worthy. And there's of course a million narratives and people happy to say, correct. You're not worthy. Only God is worthy. Like all of those quick little scriptural platitudes that justify the way we treat one another or ourselves. How do you see in your work and in your community, are you finding that people are connecting those dots to break off this belief that, okay, well, I can't marginalize myself if I'm going to try and demarginalize other people as well. One of the weakest pieces that I'll speak out of my own experience, which is evangelicalism growing up, Uh, one of the weakest pieces is discipleship, even though at least the evangelical churches I crisscross, they're always like hot for discipleship Mm -hmm. always. Oh man. They just disciple or they would call it leadership development sometimes, but discipleship. Yeah. We have no real concept of how to do it properly. Uh, Case in point, we haven't shaped and formed around loving thyself. We certainly have shaped and formed around hating yourself. So I guess that is a kind of a formation. So I don't know how you figure out worthiness when you haven't even found worthiness in yourself, that perhaps our hatred is driven by our own hatred of self. And that's certainly what many church traditions have shaped and formed. And that takes a lot of work to form out of somewhere deep inside that there's those pieces that always knocking and reminding you like, Oh, you're not enough. Yeah. You ever hear those whispers? Maybe they're not even whispers because they have nearly been embedded to the bedrock of self. And we have to be free from those pieces. We need to find 
not only freedom, but liberation unto fullness of who we were made to be. I think that's where God wants to take us. I think that is the hope that is in store for us to find the fullness of our humanity. So when we think of worthiness and the worthiness we hold for others, a lot of it has to do, and I haven't seen this done well at all uh, in the church context, is to figure out what it means to be worthy, uh, ourselves worthy, Mm -hmm. Uh, not individually, although that's part of it, but worthy uh, within a um, diverse community. Mm -hmm. So we were able to see the worthiness in others who are different than us. What we have instead is contempt. We have a contempt for others. We feel that we are better than others. And although we might seem on the outside that we hold ourselves as as worthy we really just hold ourselves as contemptuous as merely being better than for whatever inherited cultural reasons mm-hmm. than those who have been pushed for whatever cultural reasons to the margins and that is not a glimpse of this heaven and this hope to come uh, if that is the case in most churches, in fact, and I keep using most churches like painting in broad <laughs> strokes, but it's okay. probably true. And I have the data to back it up. But most churches are defined by sameness. People who act, vote, look, live in the same place. Right. And because our communities and neighborhoods have been redlined, for the most part, that's like churches are racially segregated. Yeah. And it's segregated across different spaces as well. Um, gender, uh, not gender, um, sexuality, it's ethnicity, it's ability, mm-hmm. uh, often income, political. So well, it's a total mess. <laughs> so, yeah, yeah. That, in terms of worthiness and, and, and yeah, that contemptuous part just came to me. Maybe that's a book. You want, you want that one? <laughs> now I got six others in the can that I can't get to seem to get past okay. after one. <laughs> okay. I'll hang on to it. There's, there's Good. something there. <laughs> well, and I, to, to comment on what you said about just that sameness, right? It's a hierarchy. We've got this idea that we're better yeah. than other people because we can check, you know, 10 of the 20 boxes So I'm just better than those people that only checked eight, but I'm not as good as these people who check 20. So they have authority because they can speak to something I'm missing. And I've got it in my head that I have to perform to a certain level in order to be valuable in the church. But that hierarchy creates not only new power dynamics every time you turn around, but it's got this, I don't know, I think we could easily dovetail into unpacking like celebrity culture of churches and how that Mm. influences the whole thing, because we, we are still operating under a very false premise that says you have to work to belong, that you have to contribute Mm. to belong. When the truth is you don't have to actually do anything, be a certain way, perform, contribute, serve. You don't have to serve to belong. And flipping that narrative on its head makes people paranoid because if I can belong without contributing a damn thing, without reciting, 
without speaking the language, so to speak, then what is it? What is there left, but to figure out who I am and how to appreciate the fact that I am supposedly a reflection of the incarnated God. Like if I am made in the image of God, then I'm going to have to get to know this image instead of despising this image. But I don't know. Yeah. It, it's sort of the mess of the in-betweens. Mm. And I, and I say this as a, as a pastor who has church planted for 20 years, I've worked on the edge of inside or maybe the edge of outside <laughs> of, of denomination or, or church. And so when we think of communities where you can belong uh, outside of those traditions, mm-hmm. I, I have a little bit of experience with it. it. It's hard to, it's hard to actually build and sustain community when you have a f- bunch of folks who are processing <laughs> belonging. Mm-hmm. Um, it's not sustainable to have folks come in and not do anything. Um, the trick is not to tie your belonging to the supposed value of running the engine of the church. Uh, you can get away with that by really stripping down the aspects of what church is. Of course, it's not running the Sunday morning service. Uh, if you get rid of that, is your church <laughs> even a thing anymore? And for a lot of Christians and certainly leaders, it ceases to have substance. So if there's something worth hanging on to and something worth fighting for, believing in, belonging to, uh, then perhaps it's the cart before the horse or chicken or egg scenario. <laughs> you would find uh, more willingness. Nah, willingness isn't the right word. You would have... Uh, more opportunities to realize you might be in a safe space. And then when you're in there, you can give more of yourself or give something in the context of community. It's the trade. Uh, It is the venture together unto better. That's really hard. And there's not a lot of people who, A, if you've been harmed by the church that you want to go and try again, you would rather maybe just do nothing and, and just hang with the people who don't harm you, which makes a lot of sense and to test it and to come back uh, again into a new church community is a risk. It's a risk. And ultimately this is one of the challenges of starting new communities um, and different church communities is that, you bring folks into the possibilities of better, yet relationship is the critical aspect that will bind everything together. Mm-hmm. And relationships take time. So if you start something new and you're trying to figure out what it means to just gather around the table, which is so hard during COVID, but gather around the table, do you have the time to linger into the mess for five 10 generation 20 years from now we got that kind of patience we have no formation for that type of time frame yet i wonder if that's what it takes especially when we want to reorient ourselves onto a new way of thinking and being mm-hmm. part of that is attached to how we can draw to the stories of the land and of course the land doesn't forget and has history 
beyond, you know, our comprehension in many respects. And so how might we embody a different way of being that in fact extends timeframes into a lingering patience unto the possibilities of better? Um, I don't have the answers to that because I've only been at it for whatever, 20 years. Um, (laughs) Maybe in this community that uh, I'm part of now for a couple, you know, because it keeps iterating. Like, I don't know all to say that hopefully you can travel along with some faithful and forgiving friends and some of them will stay (laughs) and uh, some will not. Yeah. I think you're right about that sense of uh, belonging when it comes to contribution and like, you can't just show up and do nothing. You're right. I do argue all the time that church has nothing to do with the Sunday morning gathering. (laughs) Like, man, I go to church on mountaintops. I go to church in the grocery store. If I am limited to a Sunday, I'm done for. Um, And COVID, I think you're like, you were kind of saying, it's hard to tell what is true and what makes sense with the, with the overarching theme of COVID and pandemics and not gathering. But I will say um, the table is actually the name of my little group of best friends. And I, there's four of us. Yeah. that uh four years ago it was four or five years ago we were on a retreat and i grabbed them and said we're going to do this really intentionally are you ready to get real are you ready to go be together and be mm. as faithful as we can and it started out saying let's make a meal together once a month and it transitioned to okay we're making a meal once a month together but we're also texting and and calling each other and having group conversations consistently throughout the month and we've gone on trips and we've had serious conflict and we've mm. had moments where we've said, is this, is this it, is this the mm. end? And there was this moment of, and I'm a pretty stubborn push through the discomfort anyway, person, but it was very easy for us to say, absolutely not. We are not going to do this for a few years and then say, oh, well, I guess it doesn't work. That's asinine. And it's counter to everything we say we stand mm. for. And so we just got home from another weekend away um, to the coast. And it was so simple, just a house for women, board games, you know, meals and conversation. And it absolutely felt like church. It was the best retreat church retreat I've ever been on in my life because we got to be authentic and we got to show up for each other in ways that I don't think you can achieve that stuff on a Sunday morning. Well, I know that you can't do it on a Sunday morning. And, and yet there's nothing about what we bring to the table that earns our seat at the table. Mm -hmm. And it's beautiful. How do we, how do we encourage people? Cause I've said this, like you need a table, you need a small crew. And I say it even to grievers, get a small crew. How do you, encourage someone who's absolutely terrified of being vulnerable because of church of wounds, because of being rejected, because of not being seen for who they are. How do you invite them into that place where they can become more liberated to say, Hey, this is who I am. And I want you to be brave and not reject me because it's easy to do. Uh, I don't know. entirely. (laughs) Biggest question ever. I don't know entirely, even though I've been doing it for a long time, because I don't know if I do it well. Mm. Um, And I think you need that level of 
authenticity maybe hmm. i just know so well of what it means to walk with imperfection mm-hmm. in community that i mean i have thoughts on what constitutes church <laughs> maybe that's another book <laughs> um but then that just kind of winds up being gatekeepy hmm. but what you describe yeah why not why can't like that counts to me mm-hmm. and in many respects i think we need to affirm where people are already at because m- many folks already have book club mm-hmm. or they already have retreat with their homies right um and now i'm finding more people let's say online and mm-hmm. we're connecting that way and those things count and i think we need to shed some of the old formation that it needs to be official. It needs to have a minister. It needs to be in a building. Definitely doesn't need to be in a building. Um, When we can shed some of that old formation, we can affirm ourselves to say that the four friends that I have that we venture and do life together count. And then you consider what it means by invitation to bring in others into this shared table that is pursuing what the love of Jesus looks like in the here and now. Mm-hmm. imperfectly we hold space for those to come through i mean ultimately if if you're holding that type of grief and experience you need to go see a therapist yeah uh, to process some of some of those things church isn't going to help and definitely a pastor is not going to help yep. hopefully your pastor is not you know re-wounding you but like even i will will miss things like what was what was the thing yeah, I was telling a story about, oh, what was it? It was around Easter. Um, and I feel like um, it was it was something to do that that brought up a, a lot of the pieces of patriarchy for the women in our in our church, in our community. And I did preface it knowing that there is dissonance um, to the idea and how people were theologically formed around it Mm -hmm. um, but it still brought up uh memories for many women and 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 that's what they heard and took away and so i couldn't even foresee just being a man that i need to rethink how i bring forward some pieces that are stories in the bible yet have been wielded with such harm Mm-hmm. So we tend to do those pieces uh, well. I give the story of how I didn't do it well, um, just to affirm that we roll with imperfection, uh, yet will the community give, and this is only by relationship, uh, space for one another for the times that either you mess up or there's tension. Um, if you don't have relationship, your inherited place doesn't work. Like no one comes into Cypher Church or a beautiful table because I'm the pastor. Like, and I have no say in anybody's life because I hold a credential. Mm-hmm. It's purely by relationship of, of who offers or gives me word into their life. So how we can do that better? I don't know. It just takes time. Um, just takes time for us to, like, for ex- example, Easter. Um, so many folks deconstructing their faith in our community right now. Easter is a time where they have been shaped and formed in a violent atonement. And so the ideas of uh, 
a God who requires uh, a, a blood uh, sacrifice or God who is so angry, God's wrath must be appeased. Like all these different ideas of just violence around the cross and the cross is violent, but it's a protest to violence. Mm-hmm. And so to offer a different way of thinking or a different possibility of how to be Christian when you know that there's something dissonant in your heart with the way that Jesus has been presented to you, especially around the critical piece of Easter, of death and resurrection, that there is a story that grants life that can be offered outside of the old formation that sounded like it was harm, because it was and is. And so the nonviolent way forward, using the example of the cross or Easter, is this notion that Jesus declares victory over all the things that are not right. And one of the acts is through defeating the powers uh, through his resurrection. Mm. Um, That's totally different than thinking of Jesus appeasing God's wrath by becoming a suitable sacrifice, Jesus, and so forth. They don't need to dredge them all up. (laughs) So you have just these different pieces of formation but you know what? Ultimately, that's just a different kind of everyone sits around and listens to it <laughs> and thinks uh, around a sermon. Not that I do long sermons or anything, but we need more than just right thinking or else we just fall into the trap of old formation where church services just became a time where you sang five songs and listened to somebody talk for 30 minutes and it's just in your head. Right. Give us more of the board games with the four friends Mm. who are venturing and doing life imperfectly together. Like the fact that you stuck together through deep conflict Mm -hmm. is indicative. You have something that is worth keeping. Mm. It's so subversive to be willing to take the narrative that's always made sense or that's the liturgy that's been approachable and and uncomplicated to an extent and to decide you know what we actually prefer the complex we prefer the fact that we won't have any clean answers by the end of this and i don't know about you but that's certainly been something that's driven my narrative because i can then say i don't have god figured out and thank god because what a small mm-hmm. god that would be mm-hmm. to finally fit and make sense and i would feel like no i'm the small one and i've made him in my image i've created mm-hmm. this sense of god that now i can say cool it looks like me we're good and it's completely backwards so i don't know i think that i i would love to just sit and unpack so much of this with you for the next 6 hours because i deeply value the perspectives and the way that I can tell you're moving through the world and making space to bring people a little bit closer, especially, and this is just my experience, um, in that you're right. That relationship is really what drives connection and transformation in, in that church culture, not credentials. Um, but I've been so historically impacted by the narrative or the teaching that pastors shouldn't really build relationships with the people they pastor, that they should just be like, you know, platform elevated or hierarchy, but not have genuine relationships. And certainly don't baptize anyone unless you've been credentialed and, you know, shown how to do the thing. And so I can, I really appreciate that you have a much more approachable and grounded um, way of talking about what all of this looks like and 
<laughs> and not affirming that, oh, by the way, here's the stamp of approval. You've done it well. Good job. This is the correct path. So thank you for, for bringing yeah. that energy. <laughs> You're welcome. Yeah. You're that's all those things that you mentioned, like only church people care <laughs> like, and only ministers who are holding again, power yeah. would fight over those things. Right. Like you mentioned, I think the word liturgy, mm-hmm. um, only the insiders care about that yeah. or participate in that. Yeah. And the inside is, is whittling away, is dying. Yeah. So do we have any possibilities for better and a new thing? I would hope and so. And I can assure you that most of those people, well, maybe I shouldn't say most, <laughs> but but singing a bunch of songs on Sunday morning, people don't connect with that. And when we were doing Cypher Church for a while, it, it was our venture at trying new things in attempts of worship. And we did all sorts of stuff. We did drawing illustrations. We did movement, dance, uh, spoken word, poetry, like those we never sang for two years, three. Well, I mean, <laughs> we haven't sung since. And so that's like five, six years. Um, not that anything's bad, but geez, it, it just stops no. becoming special. Worship is so much more expansive than being able to perform musically. And that is something. <laughs> and I usually will. it's trash. So, yeah. I mean, let's be, let's be honest. Hey, uh, you know, there are some incredible musicians, I will say that I've gotten to work with. And there are some that I'm like, okay, but you're here for the paycheck. Like I know you're a paid professional. Hold on, hold on. Y'all great. got paid? Man, no, not me. <laughs> I know some that I was always like, okay, good for you. Uh, I mean, I, I can just... appreciate that people who are like, oh, you know, it was just so authentic coming to your service. It's so nice. It wasn't polished. And they're just saying it was trash, right? But it's like, just... it was so nice. That was the juxtaposition of the well you know, manicured performance that I'm used to. And I can get both sides, but I'm like, neither of them work for me. Like the little church that's trying to emulate the big one with all the flash and dash and the expertise, like don't do that because you will do it and you do poorly. Go and just find something else that you can do. Authentically you lead authentically. I had a friend, I had one friend (laughs) in college that he would play guitar and he was beautiful guitarist but he could not find the note if we handed it to him with a label and he would sing his heart out. It was the most fun (laughs) worship like circles or just, even he would just walk around with his, I just, I loved it so much because I was such a snot about pitch and tone and harmonies as a musician. But then at the same time, I was like, but this feels real. If it feels real, then it is. Okay. Shut off his mic when we're starting. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Poor guy. <laughs> it's the whistlers that I have to shut down. I'm like, I need you to not, I need you to not whistle. Or the people who bring their own tambourines. Like, mm, let me see that for a sec. We got removed from a church once for handing musicians or handing instruments to the front row, but they were our friends and they were musicians too, but it was frowned upon. <laughs> Apparently we were setting a bad precedent. <laughs> I um I would say like I I want to see what you grew up in but really I don't. Oh no you don't. It's not it's not worth it. It's not it's not we're not going back there. Rahati your book When We Belong Reclaiming Christianity on the Margins where can people find it? Uh wherever books are sold. All yeah. over. Go to the okay. local book emporium and uh request that they bring in my book okay. or ask the library to buy it. 
one of those. Buy two. Give one to a friend. Buy a box. <laughs> give a box to your friend. Everybody's Christmas present, right? Yeah, that's going to be like me and I. My first book was an adult coloring book that I made, and yeah, everyone gets those for Christmas until I probably will die. So <laughs> you run out. <laughs> I don't think I will run out. They're everywhere in my garage, not everywhere in the world. <laughs> <laughs> That's perfect. Well, if anybody is just blown away or wants to connect more, where can they find you? Are you happy to interact with people? <laughs> um, yeah, I, I want all the, I want all the, the celebrity, but none of the attention. Um, <laughs> none of the responsibility. Yeah. I want everyone to buy my book and then not talk to me. And no, that's not true. It's always special when folks, uh, Instagram or Twitter is usually where I'm at when folks find, you know, like, man, and this was the point of why I wrote when we belong is I wanted to put into language what so many folks were going through Mm. to put into language, this process of, you know, something ain't right at church Mm. or your formation or what it meant to grow up as a Christian, something ain't right, but you couldn't put your finger on it. Mm -hmm. And at the same time, and this is the pastoral part. I don't want to see you give it all up. In many ways, like giving it all up is also sort of a, a product of power and privilege, ironically. And that's mm-hmm. I have something to say <laughs> to the white folks on that, yeah. especially on the social media's deconstruction next evangelical movements. Oh, yes. It- that there are possibilities of Jesus that are far beyond the mainline or evangelical North American white Eurocenter point of view like that jesus don't count and mm-hmm. <laughs> maybe i shouldn't say that but there's <laughs> the possibilities of of this jesus that is life-giving and liberating and your freedom is found there and here's some language to help you out through that process so that's that's i think why i wrote the book it kind of altered and changed as you know how books go oh yeah but um yeah, the language part there, finally giving pieces, I think that's an important part of for folks to find a sense of freedom is that you start slotting in some pieces of language and it makes sense. Mm. Beautiful. Thank you so much for taking your time and just unpacking so much of this with me. This has been a wonderful conversation and I'm so grateful to have met you. Thanks for listening to the Uncomfortable Grace Podcast. Each episode is recorded and produced in Medford, Oregon by Kayleen Brown, featuring music by Mixon. We're so grateful you made time to listen to this episode, and if anything stood out, we would love to hear from you. Connect with us on social media, and please share this podcast far and wide, because everyone needs a little more grace for the middle of their messes, and we've got plenty to go around. Talk to you next time.